continue the ministry of God's word, turn with me to the book of Exodus. We'll take up the reading of God's word in Exodus chapter 3. Let's stand together in the presence of our God and how we hear him speak from the scriptures we hear, even the living word of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will go down, turn aside, and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said to him, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard, I have heard um, the, their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land, from that land, to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. As far as the word of God, let us pray. Oh, Father God, we thank you that you have spoken through men of old. We thank you that you have preserved the scriptures even into our day. Father, we thank you that you have now spoken in your Son, even the Lord Jesus Christ, the living word who was God, who was with God, even from the beginning, the God who has made all things. Father, as we draw near to you to continue our worship, we come, even in Christ, the one who has rent the veil and opened the way through his flesh and through the blood of his cross. Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And give us a heart of understanding as the words of Scripture are proclaimed. Bless uh, your servant. Use the, the frail lips of man, even sinful lips, that you might show forth your glory through the foolishness of preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's fair to say for all of us that our lives are rather predictable. Um, we can say mundane. And yeah, there's ups and downs. That's part of the normal routines. We have challenges, and we move on through them. And sometimes the outcomes are undesirable, and sometimes they are very enjoyable. Mostly life is plodding on everything pretty much the same. The hard times, when 
times are hard and we can become discouraged and wish for better days. But as we'll hear a little later in this book of Exodus, God has made both the day of adversity as well as the day of blessing. The church of our Lord Jesus Christ has known seasons of great blessing as well as seasons of great suffering. In the book of Exodus, we find it open with the church of old languishing under afflictions, under oppressions, suffering great things under the heavy yoke of slavery. Hundreds of years have passed since the children of Israel went down to Egypt and were welcomed, embraced by the Pharaoh uh, that Joseph served under. But now hundred years have passed since those days. There's been no sign. There's been no word from God. But God has not forgotten his covenant people. He does not forget his own. God indeed is on the move as we find in this passage. And he is preparing to deliver Israel out of Egypt. We read in the earlier chapter of the birth of Moses. And he was born and then he was cast into the river. And then he was delivered out of the river and within five verses of that rebirth, Moses is in the wilderness. Moses' life, as we mentioned earlier in the earlier chapters, is a pattern and a picture of what will come upon Israel. Last week we saw how Moses delivered rural seven daughters from desert robes and then supplied them and their sheep with water from the well. We left off with Moses married and keeping sheep in the wilderness. And as I pointed out, we opened chapter 3, and 40 more years have passed. Just like that, Moses is 80 years old. The time when many of us think life is done if we even live to see 80 years. But Moses' responsibilities are about to begin. Chapter 3 is divided into three parts. We're dealing with the first of those. We see first God's self-revelation at the burning bush. Then we'll see God's call to Moses. We'll touch on that this morning, but deal with it more fully. And then the third portion of the chapter is God's conversation with Moses. We're going to use three main headings this morning. You see them pretty well laid right out in the text. The burning bush, approaching the holy God, and thirdly, the God who saves. I want us to remember the theme of Exodus that I set out in the opening sermon on this series. The theme of Exodus being saved for God's glory. This book is about God's glory. Indeed, all things are about God's glory, even as our lives are to be lived for God's glory. We see in this passage that it is God who acts. It is God who takes the initiative. It is the God who seeks out Moses and calls him. We find that God's people then, as now, are powerless to save themselves. But God, the God who is strong to save, is at work on their behalf. And this is the song of the saints around the throne of God, even now, as John writes it in the book of Revelation, chapter 7. What is it they sing around the throne? Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It's a song worthy of all saints to sing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Moses will learn this. Moses does not know these things. We begin then with the burning bush, verses 1 through 3. What was Moses doing when God found him? Remember, this is a man who grew up in the palace, was highly educated. What's he doing? He's tending sheep. 
Prince was a part of the royal family in Egypt, and now he's keeping sheep for his father-in-law. He's never really had, other than those early days of his life, he's never really had family in a, a place where he's established. He's been in Pharaoh's household, now he's in Jethro's household. And the sheep he's keeping, they don't even belong to him. They are his father-in-law's sheep, as the text says. Remember what Joseph said when his brothers and father came down into Egypt. He said, you shall tell Pharaoh that you are shepherds. But understand this, every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's what Moses was raised with. And what's Moses doing? He's keeping sheep. But the Egyptians deemed abominable. What a turn of events. Even what an irony. Can we say that Moses is overqualified for this job? In some sense, certainly, he's highly educated. He can deal with many things, lofty things at state and governments and so forth. Uh, but it's a whole other matter to lead sheep around in the, in the wilderness. And uh, to, to, as the psalm says, to, to bring them beside still waters that they may drink and to find green grass for them to lie down in that they can rest and chew the cud. Moses has gone from the halls of power in Egypt to sleeping in desert places with sheep. What a turn of events. Sometimes we feel like our lives have such turns of events. Sleeping around stinky sheep. To man's eyes, Moses is a complete failure. He's lost position. He's lost power. He's lost wealth. He's been humbled greatly and brought low. He fled as a fugitive from justice because he had killed a man. Maybe you can relate. Maybe your story isn't turning out like you would like it to. Remember, you're not the author. God is. God is the author of our lives. God is the one who is over all, in all, and through all. But as the story unfolds, we will see that Moses was right where God wanted him. God was preparing him to lead Israel, a mass of humanity, they were not all that different than leading sheep. And so 40 years, he's leading sheep. He's learning the ways of the wilderness. He's understanding how to understand the, the signs of the stars and uh, the weather patterns. Uh, what, the, what are the hazards of the wilderness? Uh, all of those things. The Lord is preparing this man for 40 more years in the wilderness. So we see then, Moses is in this place. We're told that he is... Um, on the back of the desert. That's a way of saying he is about as far away from home as he can go. He is very remote. He's come to a, a mountain region, and there is Mount Horeb. He's come to what is known as the mountain of God. And, you know, he's seeking to find grass for the sheep, water for the sheep. He would be leading them from place to place, constantly searching to make provision for all these animals uh, that they're well-being would be sustained. And so Moses finds himself, providentially, at Mount Horeb. Now, if you look at just the bare facts of the story, it's like Moses is completely forsaken. He's in a forsaken place. He's come to a mountain all alone. He comes to the mountain of God. Does he know it's the mountain of God? Not yet. This mountain is also known as Sinai. 
some scholars debate on uh, the location, not the location, but whether Sinai and Oreb are the same. But we, like we've seen so many times, even this man, Jethro, his father-in-law, is known as Ruel. He's often referred to as the priest of Midian. We find that on places and people throughout the Old Testament. The Mount Oreb also has the name Mount Sinai. And so there it is uh, that Moses records, like a historian who's writing these things down, what actually happened to him. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. Now, Moses is writing this after the fact. When, when he first sees it, you see the wonderment that's in his story. He doesn't know what it is. So he looked, and behold, the bush that was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. What a sight. And perhaps he, he sees smoke rising at a distance, and he's curious, so he draws near. And you think in the wilderness area, you see smoke, that might indicate somebody's there. Uh, somebody's got a fire to keep warm by or to put food upon. And he draws near out of curiosity. And when he comes, there's, there's nobody there, as far as he can see, but he sees a bush. Not a lofty cedar tree of Lebanon or some other almond tree. This is, this is a scrub bush, uh, much like a thorny bush. And it's burning. It's the sort of thing that would burn and be burned up quickly. And yet it's not. Moses sees it, it keeps burning and burning. And so the language that's used to describe this phenomenon is worth noting. What Moses sees is a continuous action. And in the original language, uh, the idea is the bush is continuing to burn, and it continued not to be burned up. That's really the way the, the Hebrew renders it. There's this ongoing burning, and yet it's continuing not to be burned up. This is supernatural. And Moses would have recognized that. There's a sight that Moses never would have seen in the courts of Pharaoh. Moses has not had any lessons in all his lofty instruction about this. What he would have understood is that bushes burn up in the dawn, and yet that's not the case. This is remarkable. Now, what's the significance of this burning bush? Or maybe we could ask, why did God choose a burning bush when he appeared to Moses? There's several things I think that are legitimate to observe and to conclude. First, it seems to have something to do with God's people in Egypt. They're suffering, as it were, in a furnace. Egypt is a furnace, and it's as though they are burning there in that place, years after years, hundreds of years going by, and yet they're not destroyed. They are not consumed. Even God would not allow the abuse of Pharaoh to destroy them, to consume them, to, to, to shrink their size. Whether you remember what we heard is that no matter what Pharaoh tried, Israel increased. This bush, is in some sense, then, is a picture of the realities of Israel. Ever oppressed, uh, Pharaoh ever trying to destroy them, and yet God is sustaining them. And we see, then, God's promise to Abraham is kept. A promise to Abraham is their father, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. The second thing we see is this burning bush that will not burn up is a picture of the plagues of God that will fall upon Egypt. The supernatural plagues. God in them will destroy Egypt, but Israel will not be destroyed. They will be preserved. They will be sustained. Thirdly, the fire is frequently used as a physical manifestation of the presence of God. It's a way that God makes himself known, that he is with his people. You will consider that when Exodus 
begins, that is, not the book of Exodus, but when the Exodus begins, they go out of the land. What does Moses describe? God going before them in a pillar of fire. A pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. A present, present a manifestation of God's presence. Does not the scripture tell us that God is a consuming fire? That His holiness is so brilliant that it is though as a fire. So you see Isaiah experience in chapter 6. That when he sees the Lord lofty and lifted up, that he falls down, behold, I am undone. Something, no, someone, greater than the phenomenon is present. This picture of a bush that is continuing to burn and yet does, does continually not burn up is a picture of someone else. There's something enduring, a, an enduring quality, an everlasting quality of this bush which speaks to the one who is present. Moses says in verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. It is the angel of the Lord that is present here before him. And everything in this passage makes it clear that this is God who has come down to meet with Moses in the wilderness. Some of you will remember when we encountered the angel of the Lord in the book of Judges. We understand that this is a representation, a, a, a Christophany, that is a picture of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who appeared at various times in history. He, he appeared to Abram several occasions, including right before he sent the angels down into the valley to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We see God at various times in the second person of the Trinity, for he is the visual representation of God, because children, what have you learned in your catechism? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. And so when, we, when God is seen in a body like men, well, that's looking forward to when God will come in human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, enter into the world, come in amongst us, even as we see him doing here. He's come down, he's come to his people, he's come into the midst of our suffering, and it is the second person of the Trinity who comes. John Calvin says, but let us inquire who this angel was. The ancient teachers of the church, he's talking about the church fathers, have rightly understood it to be the eternal Son of God in respect to his office of mediator. You think about God. God has come to Moses. He's going to speak to Moses. How is it that God approaches man? He comes to man through a mediator. And we approach God through a mediator. Moses will become a mediator. He will speak to God on the behalf of the people, and God will speak to his people through Moses. He will speak to them on the behalf of God. And we see a picture of the priesthood, ultimately the priesthood of Christ. How is it that we approach God? It's through our Lord Jesus Christ, who is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, who opens the way to God and reveals God to us. And so Moses encounters this one, the same one, who spoke to Abraham, the same one who wrestled with Jacob through the night. Well, we find that Moses' curiosity draws him closer. Look at verse 3. Then Moses said, I will not turn aside and see this great sight. It's a great sight. It's a marvelous phenomenon. It's a wonder of wonders that this bush is burning and yet not burned up. And so he comes to inquire and to see what is going on. And in the great sight, he resolves within himself that I must indeed turn aside. There's another particle in the Hebrew uh, that is generally not translated, uh, but it's important to understand because it adds this emphasis, I must, I will now 
I'll turn aside the New King James says, but the particle indicates the intensity. I must indeed turn aside. It's a great sight. We often have that happen, don't we? And sometimes I say, you know, many of you guys are Roman actors, right? Going down the high lane, see all the lights, I must see what happened. I'm curious. That's part of the way God's made us in his image. We, we want to see and understand. And there's certain things that just captivate our attention. Perhaps we even pull off the road to taking it. That would be the safer option, would it not? When it's the accident on the interstate. But anyway, Moses is curious. This great sight captures him. This word that is used, of the, this great sight, as he says. And the turn aside to see this great sight will later be used to speak of the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God that comes down on the tabernacle. So here's this connection, even in the language, that this great sight is the great sight that the people of Israel will see when the tabernacle is complete and God comes down in his glory. It is a great sight. We cannot underestimate, nor should we underestimate, the, this, this, the, the weight of this word, this great sight. It is God in the wilderness meeting with a man. And we must say by most, any honorable standard, he's not a commendable man. He's a murderer who was fled from justice, wandering, keeping sheep in the wilderness place. And yet God saw him out. Is that not a picture of Christ coming to us, bringing his salvation? Are we honorable? Are we worthy? Are we wise? No, we're, we're wretched, miserable sinners, and more than that, we are rebels against the Holy God. And yet God seeks us out. God finds us. God encounters us. And what a great sight that we do not see His coming in our spirit as God works in us. Faith and repentance unto life, the gift of God. What a great thing that is. This is the great encounter that Moses has. There's nothing to indicate that Moses is a man of faith this point. He's been schooled in what the Israelites knew about God and his dealing with Abraham and, and their forefathers and the twelve patriarchs, but Moses has much to learn. And indeed we will watch as a word from the stands as he learns that. So what is it that captures Moses' attention? And in one sense we could say what he saw was unnatural. It's unnatural that something would be burning and yet not burned up. How do we see? Uh, we do not see sites like this today. However, the lack of visible evidence of God's presence should not lead us to conclude in our day that God is absent. Absent. Let me say it again. The lack of visible evidence that God is present must not lead us to conclude that God is absent. He is present. And indeed, our lives as Christians are walk in faith and not by sight. We see the evidence of God's presence in his works of providence, in our own lives, and in, in many ways all around us. Let us, let us teach our own hearts to turn aside and marvel at God's gracious dealings with us day by day. Isn't it a practice at the end of the day, in the quiet of the evening, to look back over the events of the day and look for God's hand in your life? Indeed, it's there. He governs all his creatures, all his, I think, includes you. He's cared for you, he's done you. I, I think many of us, as believers, will have those points in life where we'll stop and wow, what does that turn out? And maybe we can remember being on the front end of that going, what's, what's going to happen? 
should not perceive ahead that God is present. He is very much involved in our ordinary and mundane lives in this wilderness here below. So let us teach our hearts to look and to see and to marvel. The same Jesus who appeared to Moses, even now seated at the right hand of the Father. And heaven lives to make intercession for you. He can do that because he is the veil that has opened the way to the Father. He is the one who brings us to the Father. But secondly, we want to consider approaching the Holy God. Verses 4 through 6. Moses turns aside. He's resigned. I will not turn aside. And so he turns aside. Verse 4. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look. So he's done it. He's, whatever way he was going, he's come over to, to consider this sight he sees. And in that moment, there's a gracious call. My God. To Moses. So Moses, so when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, it is God who calls. The covenant faithful God. The God who has not forgotten his people has met with Moses in this remote place. The great I am has stooped from heaven and condescended to visit the sons of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in that time and at that place. Let us remember what Moses has done. He's a murderer on the run. He's a man of Egypt, a man that's schooled in uh, the, the pagan religions and the cultic practices of the Egyptians. We don't know whether he practiced and participated in those things. Probably did. He was a member of the royal household. They've been all around him. And indeed, he has many other sins as well. And yet, God encounters Moses and is a gracious call. Moses. Moses. God calls Moses by name. Think about that. No, really, just think about that for a moment. He's, he's in the wilderness. He sees this phenomenon, and then suddenly, from one out of it, there's a voice calling to him his name. You can imagine he's concluding, nobody knows I'm even here for hundreds of miles, and certainly nobody knows my name, and yet suddenly, someone says Moses to him. Is that not the interruption of the Holy Spirit in our lives when he comes with the effectual call into salvation? God knows the names of his people and he comes and he effectually calls us to himself. Moses, Moses, the repetition of Moses' name we should understand as a caution. Moses, he hears his name, but he hears it again. Children, I want you to think of it this way. When you hear your parent, your mother and your father call you by your whole name, I think about myself, you know, my mother said, Daniel James George Tabuk. You call it short. Something important's going on. It wasn't always bad, usually otherwise you're in trouble. But you know, maybe it's because you're not paying attention and you hear your whole name. My kids would do that with their mother, be mama, mama, and she's not here, and that's it. Mrs. George Get her attention. Moses is being arrested. Moses. Moses. There's a caution in God calling to him, and that caution we see play out as God proceeds. And first Moses responds, Here I am. The response of submission, yielding this. Moses, in some sense, recognizes the one who is talking to him is infinitely greater than he is. Though he has seen the lofty king of Egypt, the one who speaks to now is much greater. Just hearing his name is arrested, but hearing it twice. Moses, whatever he 
always thinking about whatever his agenda has been, whatever he planned for the rest of the day, suddenly he's completely yielded. Here I am. That's my response to the effectual call of God's Spirit in the Gospel to us. Here I am, Lord. Like saying, speak, Lord, for your servant heareth. Well, we see then from this call that's affected Moses. He's heard, and he answers. And then the call comes with a caution to Moses. Moses does not know much about this God. So let's say in a little bit, you know, he would have been instructed as a child. He, he does not know who this one is speaking. Remember, God has not spoken to his people in many, many years. There's been no prophets. I think we could argue that Jacob is the last of the prophets before his death as he prophesies over each of his sons. And then there's been no speaking from God. There's been no dreams from God. And so God mercifully instructs Moses how he's to conduct himself in the presence of an infinitely holy God. And what does God say? Verse 5, do not draw near this place. Moses is turned aside. He's approached to a point. But it's just as God says, that's close enough. I'm infinitely greater, infinitely holy. You come close enough. Do not draw near this place. Then God instructs him further. He says, take your sandals off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. The sandals, you know, having tried the earth, have been unclean. Not really something that Moses understood about right then. But God is saying, I want your human feet that I have made alone on this holy ground in my presence. Whatever curiosity... Moses has had, it must be satisfied now as God instruction. And he must take care that he does not have familiarity that leads to contempt. Likewise, brothers and sisters, every time we draw near to worship God in this place, we're in the private place of our own prayer closets. Yes, we're welcome. Yes, he begs us to come. Yes, he calls us by name. But let us remember, he is God. He is holy. He is exalted. Moses must learn to show reverence in the presence of God. He must learn to obey Him. God has determined, God determines how His creatures are to approach Him. How we have to behave in His presence. Our order of worship follows what we would call the regular principle of worship. What we do is not just random. It's not just tradition. It's following the pattern that's set down in Scripture. The elements that, uh, that we use are the ones that are set down in Scripture because God has revealed Himself to us. How much more detail as we will see as we move on into the book of Exodus. And certainly in, in Leviticus, with all the minutiae, the instruction, God regulating His worship and how He is to be approached and what you're to bring in your worship. You read that lately? I'm wrapping up Leviticus right now. Brothers and sisters, we dwell in a time of simplicity. God is still holy. But I don't see any of you pulling uh, little animal clips as you came to worship this morning. We haven't had to bring animals in a sacrifice because the once for all sacrifice has been offered up, even Jesus Christ. He said, we come we have come informed. We understand Christ and His work because of these things. But we come informed by them. Moses, he's going to learn. And we're going to enter into this period in the life as the church is being uh, expanded in fashion and form of tremendous minutia in worship. 
And it all comes down to something we must never forget. God is completely other. Go here. Become a reverence. And with all. Then we see God's declaration to Moses. Up to this point, Moses has only heard the voice of God. He's heard God say, Moses, Moses. And then he's heard, do not draw near this place. Take your sandals and off your feet for the place where you stand. And now there is the revelation who speaks to him in verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father. Notice it's singular. What is God saying? He says, I'm the God of Ammon, your father. And then he goes on into the fathers. It's not the God of your fathers, Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob, which is common, but the God of your father. I think God says that to arrest Moses. You know, how long has it been since he sat at his father's knee as that little child still nursing at his mother's breast before he was sent into Pharaoh's house? How long? What, what is it that Amram taught him? We can conclude, I think, with all fairness that Amram and his mother, Jochebed, would have instructed him that he is a, a son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God has made promises to them as a people, that God has promised even to Abraham that we a day when he will come and deliver them out of Egypt and take them into the land of promise that he would have heard these things. And God is saying, I am the God of your father, the one who taught you. I am that God you learned about as a little child. Has Moses even thought about him? Suddenly he's thinking, God says, I am the God of your father. And then drawing them back into all that instruction that he would receive, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Did Moses get it? Yes. He would have heard the stories. What he does next underscores that, that Amram taught him things of this God, that he would have heard of Jacob's wrestling with his father and the holiness and the reverence and the awe that their forefathers had, something he would have even heard in his own father's voice. And what is uh, Moses' response? What is the impact upon Moses? He hit his face. He was afraid to look upon God. Moses' response in his encounter with the one true living God has such a powerful effect upon Moses. This should be instructive. Moses hit his face. That's what Isaiah did. He fell on his face. We find that again and again. When you see uh, the, the men of God speaking about what's happening in the heavenly realms, the, the seraphim and the cherubim, those angelic beings who are holy in the presence of a thrice holy God, they cover their eyes. They're always covering their eyes in the presence of this God. Moses was both afraid and ashamed to look upon God. He's a sinner. And he knows it full well, being in the presence of the Son of God. Thus far, the light that came from the burning bush has held Moses captive. But now that he knows the source of that light, he falls down. He hides his face. He's afraid. I'm not being cheeky or cheesy here. But I think it's important to know this. Let us never be jealous of charismatic or Pentecostals who claim to have seen God. I cannot believe a man who says, oh, yeah, God appeared to me and told me this and so. I'm going to ask him, what was your response? Was it like this? Was it like Job's friend when God came and talked with him and then he was silent as though ill for like three or four days, I don't remember exactly how long? That's where we find 
instance, when God appears to men, their response is tremendous. Moses, when he comes down from the mountain, he's been in the presence of God, as God has condescended to bring him into his presence, mediated Moses to be in his presence through the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses comes down with such a glory upon God, that God reflected upon him, that the people cannot look to him. said, Moses, you must veil your face. It is a marvelous thing that the Creator of all is our God and our Father, that we get to draw near to Him by because of the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ through Him, through the Lord Jesus Christ, how by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within us. But we must never have an over-familiarity with this God. He is so infinitely higher than we are. And that's the wonder of wonders that we get to come but he remains ever and always God, our Creator, and we remain ever and always creatures formed from the dust of the earth. Let us never have a casual familiarity. God is a consuming fire. We have reverence in all in his presence. Thirdly, we see the God who saves. God, who has drawn Moses near, revealed to him who he was in that encounter. Then God proceeds with his word, and God uh, most often speaks to make himself known. Isn't that interesting? How is it that God reveals himself in his word? So the writer of the book of Hebrews opens up. In various times past, God spoke through the, to our fathers, through the prophets. He has in these days spoken to us by his Son. And when Jesus walked upon the face of the earth, no one apprehended that he was the Son of the living God. And yet, how has he manifested himself to the twelve? Through the word, the teaching, and the preaching of the word, even as God continues to do today, God makes himself known. He reveals himself through his word. So what, is, what does uh, God say then? To Moses. Verse 7, the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. Is anybody saying, that sounds familiar? The same three things are right at the end of the previous chapter, verse 24 and 25. God saw them, he heard, and he knows. He saw what? Their impressions. He heard their cry. He knows their sorrows. O child of God, do not think for one moment that your sorrows, your sufferings, your afflictions are unheard of before the face of God. Even the lowest of the low, God sees and he hears. But also, even the loftiest of the great, God sees and hears. And he deals with us all according to his plan. So God has seen He's heard and he knows. And then God makes a promise to Moses. What is God's promise? Verse 8, God has promised to deliver his people. So, he says, I've seen, I've heard, I know. So, therefore, because of this, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. There's comings of God to the earth that are not in the same degree of coming of Christ incarnation by the Virgin of Mary where he came and he was incarnate, God in human flesh, on the earth for some 33 years. And as he shall come again, at the end of the age, he shall come down on the earth. But there are other comings of God that do not include God's actual um, setting foot, as it were, on the earth. And here we see it. God says, I have come down. 
when Jesus answers his disciples' questions about the destruction of Jerusalem and Judea and even the nation of Israel. He talks about a coming down. And some people conflate that with his coming again. That is not the case. We learn here from this Old Testament principle. God has come down. He's going to act. He's going to deliver. He's going to crush Egypt. He has come down with judgment and wrath for Egypt and with mercy and salvation for his people. He's come down. But he can do all that from heaven, and yet he condescends to come amongst the children of men. God has come down to deliver. God is fixed in this matter, and he will not turn back from doing what he has said. And all this leads to God's means and God's man. And that's what we see in the text. Verse 9 basically recapitulates what was in verse 7 that God has seen, he's heard, and that he knows he's going to deliver them. But then God has a means. He raises up a redeemer. He raises up a deliverer, even as we've seen in the earlier chapters, pointing to what Moses' calling in life will be, that as he was drawn out of the water and named Moses, he was in his Egyptian name, he was named as one who will draw out. He is the one who God will use to draw his people of Israel out of the nation. In verse 10 he says, Come now, God speaking to Moses, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. This is God's plan. God is commissioning him to be a prophet and to be a king and to be a priest. Moses is one of the few men who are pictures of all three offices of Christ. But seen go forth as a king, but in the king and the delivering and through the mighty hand it's also the prophecy. But then we see Moses, as it were, a, a priest of the higher order than Aaron, his brother, who is set up as a high priest. Moses is the one acting as the, on God's behalf to consecrate Aaron and the temple or the tabernacle and the priest and all the furniture. What a man. We'll be exploring all this as we move forward. Pharaoh's rage against the seed of the woman that is within Israel has come to God's attention. And now God will come down to destroy the seed of the serpent in Egypt, that he would preserve the seed of the woman that is in the tribe of Judah. Moses will go, and he will speak for God to, Moses, to Pharaoh. He will be God's instrument. That's the specific task that Moses is receiving. You can just imagine, this is not the day Moses planned. He's just leading dumb, stinking sheep around in the wilderness place. And he sees a phenomenon. And then God speaks to him. And God says, I am your God, the God of your fathers, and I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people out. What would, what would be your response? I'm not sufficient for that. I cannot do that. That's too much for We're going to see. That would be Moses' response. But that's for next week. What we want to remember is that God owns the children of Israel. His promise to Abraham, when it was but Abraham, he says, I will be a God to you and to your children after you in your generations. And he manifested that covenant as the animals were cut in half and laid there and in the night the, the tor smoking torch, a, a pot of fire passed between here a, a foreshadowing of this moment when that fire passed cutting the covenant between God and Abraham here we 
see God making covenant with Moses to send him again coming in fire. Pharaoh is seated on his throne because God has decreed it. And God will topple him when his days are over. And to do that, God has gone to the backside of the desert to call a humble shepherd from sheep to come out and be a mighty shepherd unto God and to lead his people out of bondage. Every king, prince, president, prime minister, dictator, imam, ayatollah, strongman, communist chairman, sit where they sit because God has decreed it. And when it suits God's purposes, he can overthrow anyone and every one of these in a moment. No man can stop or stay the hand of God. He has given it to his Christ to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled, but a little. Sisters and brothers, are you afflicted? Are you oppressed? Are you suffering? Cry out to God and be assured He hears you. Whatever your suffering may be, a struggle with sin, with illness, with, with circumstances, with a neighbor, in a workplace, whatever the case may be, cry out to God. He hears, and He will come down, and He will act to deliver His people. Maybe with a mighty blow, or maybe with calling you out of this world into the next. Sometimes that's our delivery from illness. Therefore, do not fear man and what he can do to you. Fear God, who is able to destroy both the body and soul in hell. Fear God and be found in Christ by faith alone. As we conclude, when we look at the events reported in the four Gospels, we find the same pattern. It was God who acted. God saw his people in the bondage of sin, and he acted. This is true in our individual lives as well. God sees us into the bondage of sin. And Jesus comes and says, Take my yoke upon you. We offer salvation to us. We find, even as Moses was not seeking God, Scripture declares, declares to us, No man seeks after God. No man seeks after God. God is the one who seeks. God is the one. Jesus, the good shepherd, he goes out seeking all those whom the Father has given unto him because God said of the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. God came down from heaven, and Christ, not in a burning bush, something far more humble, far not less phenomenal. He came in the form of a servant. The incarnation did not take place in a palace, but in a stable, not to a queen's daughter, but a lowly virgin. God came down. God incarnate. God come in the human flesh. With all the weakness of our human flesh, yet without sin. He came to serve, not to be served. Jesus then humbled himself on the cross, dying to save his people who were oppressed by sin and Satan. No one went up into heaven to bring him down. No man saw our Christ. No man conceived the salvation plan that God has accomplished. Salvation is of the Lord, our God, and of his will. Indeed, that all praise, honor, and adoration should be unto God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, we marvel at these things. We marvel at these lessons from the old book, from events that happened many, many years ago 
that seem in some sense far removed from us, and yet they're timely and they're relevant, and they speak to us today. Father, as we see Moses' encounter with you, we marvel that for many of us, we too have had the encounter when you have sought us out. And as it were, you have arrayed before us the phenomenon of of the God-man, Christ crucified on on a Roman cross, shame and humiliation and anguish, and yet a phenomenon that there, there he won the victory, there he triumphed for the sake of your people, there he showed forth your glory, that in what man being weak, there was great victory. And we rejoice, O God, that Satan's head is crushed, and that our Redeemer ever lives to make intercession for us. Lord, give us eyes to see you at work in our lives and the hearts of praise and thanksgiving for all that you do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.